Uh, today we're in Matthew. Uh, Genesis is finished. Four years of chugging through, and uh, we finished that last week. And from uh, now until Pentecost, so that's after Easter, uh, we're going to be in Matthew. Uh, so if you, have math, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open to Matthew 8, uh, or you can follow along in the bulletin that's printed there. Let me pray. Lord, you are our God, and you have been so gracious to us. We pray that you would take your word and use it. Lord, I just rejoice to hear your promises that your word will never come back void. It will never not accomplish the thing you sent it for. And so I pray, Father, for your spirit to do that work, to do the work of softening hearts, I've given us eyes and ears to hear and see you, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, do this work, which only you can do. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let me read our passage. Matthew 8. And when Jesus, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them, or for a witness to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is paralyzed, is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found faith such as this. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is the reading of God's word. You know, last week we looked at uh, Jacob and Joseph as they were facing their death, uh, and kind of this uh, passage covered in death, and we're thinking about, well, what does it mean to have hope in the midst of uh, actually coming to the end of your control? Uh, being in situations where you have absolutely no control, and yet uh, the Lord intends to be with us. And we looked at the Lord's, uh, the hope that they had, and the Lord's love and power to recreate. The question is, you know, well, what do we do until then? What do we do until heaven, <laughs> until the Lord does make all things new? Uh, just kind of grin and bear it, right? Uh, hunker down and uh, quit complaining. Actually, it's the opposite. Um, and that's what we're going to look at in Matthew today. Jesus has come 
at this point, and uh, he's already begun his ministry, and we've had the Sermon on the Mount, and what he said over and over is, in fact, no, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. So in Jesus' mind, in fact, what we're looking forward to in the last day has already begun now. It's already begun now. It's future and it's present. It's already and it's not yet. There's always those both aspects of it. Uh, the future of the last day is breaking in today. The hope of tomorrow is breaking in today. So today we turn to Jesus. Uh, he is the very person of God incarnate. God visits, like we said last week. This was Joseph's hope. God will surely visit you, and he has. He's visited in Jesus. So the question, though, is, uh, you know, the kingdom of God is here today. The kingdom of heaven is broken in. But what kind of kingdom is this? Uh, what kind of kingdom are we looking for? What does it mean? I think for most of us, and especially in our culture, you know, the things we look for in terms of hope and progress and kind of the final culmination of all things, uh, in our culture at least, you know, we, what kind of kingdoms do we look for? We look for uh, democracy to spread, education. Uh, we look for literacy. We look for uh, human rights. And all those things are good. Um, you know, and even uh, at times the church has said, well, Republican values, that's what the kingdom of heaven is about. Uh, the Lord is neither Republican nor Democrat, thankfully. Uh, you know, for much of the 20th century, uh, the reigning cultural majority uh, has uh, kind of put its... Uh, Christianity has had uh, kind of the reigning cultural majority, right? The church has been in this uh, kind of seat of dominance and privilege. And so the hope has been in regaining uh, those seats of power, regaining that kind of influence, regaining... Uh, the ability to exert our cultural preferences. And really, I think for my generation in the 21st century, the, the temptation of the church will be uh, not so much trying to gain dominance, but trying to gain relevance, right? Uh, I don't necessarily want you to do everything I say. I just want you to think I'm, I'm, I'm cool. <laughs> I just want you to listen to me and think I'm worth listening to. And obviously, these are broad brushstrokes. I, I don't mean to imply every church is like this. Really, uh, I think as a culture, and we said this last week, we are hungry for hope, right? Uh, we're hungry for something to change. We're hungry uh, for things to get better. And uh, the longing for this hope was seen clearest, in, in my mind, in the Obama campaign. Uh, one of my favorite artists, Shepard Ferry, he's kind of this ex-graffiti artist turned kind of political activist. Anyways, he's uh, brilliant, and one of the things he did was he made this poster of Obama. We've all seen it. Uh, you know, it's kind of blue and red and kind of beige face. And at the bottom, it first said progress. That was the first printing. Well, once the Obama administration got a hold of it and they wanted to use it, they changed it to say what? Hope. Hope. Or change. I have no comments on Obama here, but the point is, is the genius of this campaign, the insight into the turmoil and frustration that most Americans felt, or even... Uh, a vocal section of Americans felt during Bush's years. Uh, Ferry recognized this ter turmoil, and Obama recognized this turmoil, and uh, the genius of it was to say, listen, if you want to have hope, <clears throat> if you want change, here's the man. Here's the man. And it's not foreign to us. This is, it fits. We want a leader. We want someone who will bring that about. We want to have hope in a person. Well, you know, it was no different for the Jews in the first century. Uh, I'm just going to briefly give you a sense of what's going on in this passage in terms of the history. You know, about 100 years before this, 
the Jews had successfully, uh, I'm sorry, about 200 years before this, the Jews had successfully repelled their oppressors. They had successfully revolted and uh, cast out all of the nations who had been dominating them. And in fact, if you know the biblical history, there's about five series of nations who had oppressed them. The, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and then finally the Syrians, who are the worst. And the Syrian king, he named himself, he named himself God Manifest. He named himself Antiochus Epiphanes, God himself in flesh. And so the Syrian king comes into Jerusalem and he, he slaughters thousands. And he comes into the temple, the very place where the Jews, uh, where the Spirit of God was. And what does he do? Uh, he comes and desecrates it. Uh, and this is horrible offense to the Jews. And so out of just sheer anger and disgust and violence and, and energy and fear, uh, the Jews are able to actually kick out the Syrians. Uh, they successfully kick them out. This is called the Maccabean period. Well, they'd have that for about 100 years. And it's mostly good until there's a little bit of infighting, <laughs> of course. You know, you know, there's kind of this sense in which we finally have the kingdom that we've been late waiting for. David's back on the throne, a, a Davidite. And, and it, it's the day. The day has come. We're going to celebrate. We're going to worship the Lord like we're supposed to. But what happens? Well, 60 years before Jesus is born, Emperor Pompey, the Roman emperor, comes in and just trounces Jerusalem. He destroys them. He rolls over them systematically. There is no mercy with the Romans. And so you see, for the Jews at this time, their hope was that, in fact, there would be a guy who would come, that there would be a king. In fact, if you read the literature from this period, there are lots of people who claim to be the Messiah, to be the anointed one, the king. But all of them were put down under the heavy hand of the Romans, under the thumb so you see, for the Jews, even at this time, there was hope, but it was hope dashed. It was hope dashed. Dashed and crushed. And it was not simply this defeat of the Romans. They continued to live under the power of the Romans. They continued to live with Roman army, Roman soldiers, Roman authorities in their cities, uh, Roman taxes. So here's the question then. Jesus comes and says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, how? Where? Where is it? I'd like to see it. He answers this in three ways. The kingdom of heaven comes through the heavenly king. Comes through the heavenly king. The kingdom of heaven is a community of the needy. And finally, the kingdom of heaven is built by the spirit and in obscurity. The kingdom of heaven is built by the Spirit through his people in obscurity. Or you could ask it like you could do these three points like this. Who is the king? Who is part of the kingdom? And how is the kingdom established? And those are, you can just keep those in your pocket when you're reading Matthew. That's, those are the questions Matthew's asking all the time. Where is the kingdom? Who's a part of it? How is it coming? So first of all, the kingdom of heaven comes through the heavenly king. We have these three sets of miracles, you know, this healing of the leper and the healing of the centurion servant from a distance and then the healing of uh, Peter's mother-in-law, and then also kind of attached to that and briefly mentioned is the healing of the many. Uh, there's this group, all who were brought to him, the Lord healed. Uh, you know, I just want to think about this for a minute. You know, what are miracles actually for? Uh, and kind of do a little theology of miracles. 
Uh, miracles do two things. Uh, they uh, assure us that the person doing the miracle is actually a spokesman for God. Right? You have the same thing with the prophets in the Old Testament. Moses has a staff, throws it down, becomes a stake. You have all these signs that attend to God's official spokesman. But the other thing, and this is more important for Jesus, is that miracles show us the character of the one behind them. Miracles reveal who Jesus really is. They reveal who the heavenly king is and what he's about. So we see a few things about the character of the king here. Uh, he is the author of life, uh, first of all, the pure and purifying one. You know, you see this in verses uh, 1 through 4 uh, with the leper. Uh, leper was an incurable disease at the time. Uh, leprosy, excuse me. Uh, and even so, uh, you know, the discovery of a cure now doesn't actually change the fact that Jesus comes to this man, or this man comes to Jesus, and the man says, if you will, I'll be clean. And Jesus says, I will be clean. And he touches him. Now, the power of the touch here is not simply uh, that the Lord has compassion, but uh, if you were to touch a man who had leprosy, uh, you're likely going to be infected. You know, it's a skin disease. Uh, you're likely going to become unclean, just as he was. So the point of the miracle here is that actually Jesus is the author of life. He is the pure one, but he's also the purifying one. His touch purifies. He is not repelled by our uncleanness. You know, the heavenly king is not a bodiless spirit. That's the other beautiful thing here is that it says he stretched out his hand and touched him. It says basically two, two words to emphasize to us that he's touching. There's, there's actual physical touch here. Jesus is not some, some kind of ethereal spirit floating around that looked like a person. No, no, no. He was a person. He had a body. He does have a body. Uh, this is purity, the purity, the author of life, met with compassion. Met with compassion. The beautiful thing here is that the leper had probably not been touched in ages. Ages. You know, think about that. Uh, no sign of affection, no sign of being welcomed, and the Lord touches him willingly. Well, the other thing is uh, that these miracles show us is that his word is authoritative, and you can see this uh, in his interaction with both the leper and with the centurion. Uh, in verse 2, the leper says, If you are willing, you can make me clean. That is the will, that if he has the will for it. And then verse 8, uh, the centurion says, listen, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but only say the word. Only say the word, and my servant will be healed. There's this heavy reliance on Jesus' will, on his, uh, simply on his commanding it to be so. Both the leper and the centurion recognize that this Jesus is not simply teaching with authority in the Sermon on the Mount. No, he is the very authority of God. He is God himself. And you know, you have this uh, bit in verse 9. The centurion says, For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. When I was reading this when I was younger, I was like, what does that even mean? Why is, how is this at all an argument for Jesus' authority? Well, what the centurion is saying is, listen, I have authority as a Roman soldier. Okay, the centurion, he oversees 100 soldiers. He is an official delegate of the Roman uh, imperial authority. And he says, I have authority because at the top of the line is Caesar. And he's given me authority to command this group of people to do these things. I say go, they go. And they have to go. Or they will report to ultimately to Caesar. 
And he says to Jesus, listen, I understand that you're the same, but on a whole other level. You actually are the very authority of God. You are under the Father's authority. Not because you're lesser. And the, uh, you know, there's been struggles with this over church history. It's people thinking that Jesus is lesser or less deity or less glorious or less powerful. No, 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 no. Jesus is actually fully God and fully uh, glorious, equal in substance. But he willingly submits to the Father. And so this Jesus being under the Father's authority is actually a move of love. And the, the, the centurion recognizes this. You know, the cool thing about this is that uh, there's no intermediary, right, uh, for this healing. Jesus says, well, he doesn't say, well, uh, you can heal him, but here, take this, take this tonic, and it'll, it'll wash out this paralysis. Or, uh, you know, let me cast this spell, or let me say this incantation. Uh, there's nothing like that. There's nothing like that. Uh, the Lord says, uh, let it be done for you as you have believed. Simply a command. Let it be so. And you know, that needs to remind us of uh, another let it be. Uh, not the Beatles, but uh, Genesis 1. Uh, let there be light. This is simple command, and what? And it was. Let there be light, and it was. Let there be on earth vegetation, and it was. You see, the, the point here that Matthew's trying to draw our attention to is that uh, Jesus is not simply giving good wishes, right? He's not saying, yeah, 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 I hope, it's, I hope it's that way for you. No, he's saying, he's giving divine command. We say this by fiat, by, by the very words he utters, it happens. This is the very power of God incarnate. Let it be done for you as you believe. This is the same power that made all of the earth and upholds all heaven and earth simply by the word he heals. You know, the last thing these miracles show us is that he is God and Messiah. Uh, all this adds up to show us that Jesus is not simply just a wonderful moral teacher, right? Uh, it's really popular in our culture and especially with modern scholars to talk about Jesus. You know, when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about this set of ethics and kind of these morals and be nice and love your neighbor and don't judge, definitely don't judge, uh, and don't toot your own horn, and, and so on. But really, that misses the entire point of the Sermon on the Mount. But then coming off of the Sermon on the Mount, actually what you see is, is that he's not simply suggesting things. Those were authoritative, those were authoritative declarations. Right? He's, giving the, he's giving his own law, really, in the Sermon on the Mount. And then he comes to these healings, and simply by his command, he heals he is on a mission. He is not simply here to inspire. Praise the Lord. I don't want to be inspired. I need a savior. He is doing things only God himself can do. But he's also Messiah. And you see this in verse 17. You know, Messiah is uh, kind of a loan word from Hebrew. It means anointed. And this is what happened with kings. They would be anointed and set apart. And God's spirit would come on them. And they'd be tasked with the job of king. Leading God's people, representing them before the Lord, leading them into battle, leading them in holiness. And so the Jews have been expecting this David, this descendant of David, to come onto the throne. And we kind of talked about that with the Maccabees. Well, the Jesus, uh, he is the son of David. 
And Matthew says, in fact, he is the Messiah. And he quotes Isaiah 53 here, which is talking about this servant, the servant of the Lord who will come. You know, he is, uh, Jesus is doing all these miracles and he is beginning to look like the king that the Jews have been waiting for. Maybe this is the guy. Maybe he really is going to give us the kingdom we want. Uh, but really, it kind of gets turned on its head very quickly. Uh, Jesus establishes his kingdom through bearing our sorrows, through bearing our illness, through bearing our sin. He establishes his kingdom through suffering. He says in verse 17, uh, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And Matthew quotes this little snippet of Isaiah 53. You know, as you read your Bibles, this is just a little free nugget. (laughs) If you read a little quote from Old Testament scripture, what they're doing, they're not just quoting that and running with it. They're not taking it for all it's worth and ignoring what's happening in an actual Old Testament passage. What they're doing is they're, they're quoting a snippet and it's shorthand for what's happening in the entire passage. All right, so I'm just going to read a bit of Isaiah 53, not the whole thing, just a few verses here following uh, before and after. Isaiah 53 says that he, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief and sickness. That is, someone who hung out with sick people. That's the sense there. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Uh, That's almost exactly what was probably happening with this leper. He was a man who was disfigured and people would hide their faces from him. And yet Jesus is with this man. And it's not simply identification. This is the beautiful part of Isaiah 53. He goes on, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds... We are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Jesus is king. He's God and man. But he's more than that. He's a suffering servant. He establishes the kingdom of God by suffering, by bearing our sins on the cross. In fact, Isaiah says it explicitly. These healings are made available to people through the death of Jesus on the cross. Ultimately, how is Jesus bringing the kingdom of God? By dying on the cross and rising from the dead. By dying on the cross. His death on the cross is how he heals us, not only from our sicknesses, but also from our sin and our distance from the Lord. You know, the other aspect of uh, miracles is that they witness, and I just want to briefly say, uh, you know, this word in verse 4, Jesus tells the Leper to go to present himself to the priests is required in the law. It says, as a proof to them. That word proof is witness. Uh, that's a legal, functional, technical term. Uh, to have someone as a witness means that you're supposed to listen to them. They have something to say. They have actually sufficient legal grounds uh, that should be convincing. So the point of it here is that, you know, uh, I think for many of us, we struggle with miracles. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of kind of criticism in our day of miracles. Well, miracles couldn't happen because they're against the laws of nature. Well, that kind of reminds me of when my son and I will will run upstairs, you know, to bed, and he'll be in the lead, and so he'll say, Dad, it's a race! (laughs) And so he takes off, and I'm, okay, all right, whatever. But then if I'm in the lead, you know, Eli says, Dad, it's a race, but it's a slow race. (laughs) 
So he gets to set his own rules, see? And see, that's kind of how the criticism of miracles works. Surely there couldn't have been miracles. Surely these, all, these ancient people, they're just naive. They're superstitious. They're dumb. We're smarter. Miracles can't happen. They're against the laws of nature. Actually, uh, as long as we're setting our own rules, uh, let's just think about the fact that these ancients were not in dumb. In fact, they needed a proof. They needed a witness, just like we do. So, brothers and sisters, we can certainly trust this. But, you know, the question I come to with this passage is, uh, why no more miracles? You know, my family's been sick all week, and actually, last two weeks, and I've been reading all these healings, and I'm like, all right, Lord, kind of like you to come to my door, <laughs> touch my wife's hands and my baby's hands, and take their sickness away. Uh, well, first, uh, actually, there are numerous uh, miraculous and extraordinary things that the Lord does all the time. All the time. Uh, you can ask anyone who prays consistently. Lord Ungersma is a great person to ask about how the Lord answers prayer. You know, I've been praying for this pastor down in Oregon, this uh, Orthodox Presbyterian guy. Horrible motorcycle accident. Doctor said, no way he's going to live. Brain damage, spinal damage, whole thing. Just, he's out, gone. The brother is being released from therapy this week. You can explain that, I suppose, in a few uh, other ways, but the, the reality is, is why do those things happen? Well, it's the Lord's favor. But I will also say that miracles don't same happen, don't happen on the same scale or the same immediacy that they did with Jesus or with the apostles. And the point is here is, uh, is just this. Uh, entrance into the kingdom, entrance into the family of God is not through simply benefiting from the good things he does. No, entrance into the kingdom is through the king. It's through the king. And the miracles point us to who Jesus is so that we would be united to him, so that we would be joined to him. Each one of these miracles is in the context of relationship. The leper comes to him, Lord, I need you. The centurion comes to him, Lord, please. Uh, Peter's mother-in-law, he's in her house. You know, the kingdom of heaven comes by Jesus displaying himself to us. And it's begun in men and women and children and sick and needy and oppressors and the obscure and the forgotten, all being united to the Savior, being joined to him. Like a marriage, being joined to him, being bound to him through repenting of their sin and being reconciled being reconciled. The kingdom of heaven begins with God reconciling you to himself. That's the kingdom of heaven here and now. You know, uh, just beginning to learn some of your stories over the last six months, you know, there's a number of you that the Lord has done uh, marvelous things in. Miraculous, awesome stories. This is the best thing about membership interviews. We get to hear about how the Lord has been working in all these families. I mean, there's some amazing things that the Lord's done in all of your hearts. Uh, stubborn, resistant, self-righteous hearts being made soft and pliable and understanding grace for the first time. Uh, rebellious, cold, and vicious hearts beginning to come to the Lord for forgiveness. Those are things you can't manufacture. Right? You, can't, you can't make that up. It's the Lord's doing. It's the Lord's doing. So here's the other question. Who is part of this kingdom? Who is a part of this kingdom? Excuse me. 
The kingdom of heaven uh, is made up of needy people. The kingdom of heaven is made up of needy people. Uh, no one wants to be called needy, right? If my wife called me needy, I'd probably balk and complain and tell her that I'm not needy and then show how, I was, how needy I am for her to approve of me. Uh, but the kingdom is built around our need for a savior, you see. Uh, and this is actually the opposite of the way that our culture goes about it, right? How do you build a kingdom? Uh, well, uh, you know, I, I was at this uh, creative arts in St. Louis. They have this uh, wonderful kind of arts organization, COCA, and they were putting on this dinner, and I was working there for a friend of mine with his restaurant, and, uh, you know, all these people were coming in totally dressed to the nines and stuff you'd never see any day. And I was asking, like, what's the deal with these people? Who's, what's all this fashion-forward stuff coming from? What's, you know, what's this gala about? And he's like, oh, well, that's the Blantons. And, you know, they contributed $5 million to Coca last year. And, you know, that was just a sign of a check. Oh, and that's the, the Brainerds. And they, you know, they built the West Wing of Coca. And, uh, and, and what's this dinner? This dinner is free because, really, uh, what we're trying to do is we're trying to access uh, the most influential, the most powerful, uh, the people with the deepest pockets whether intellectually or just in terms of power. And you see the same thing with multiple fundraising dinners, right? The $600, the $5,000 fundraising dinners, all that stuff is aimed at getting on your side the people who have power, who have sway, who have influence. Uh, getting the people who don't need you, you need them. You need them. That kind of kingdom is for the educated, self-motivated, the bootstrappers of us. Literate, nice, wealthy. But here's the problem. It leaves out the majority of the world, right? Even in America, it leaves out the majority of us. Never mind the other half of the globe. <laughs> it's arrogant. Uh, but here's the deal. Uh, it's not either. Uh, the kingdom is not built uh, simply by the Lord bringing around him influential people, but it's also not built uh, by the Lord having people be super active for him, right? Uh, and you see this back in actually... Uh, Chapter 7, 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons? Do we not do many mighty works in your name? I'll declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. See, activity for the Lord is also now not how we come into the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is not a cause for us to get behind. Right? We're not going to put a bumper sticker that says, bring the kingdom today, 2014. Uh, productivity without union, without deep intimacy with the Lord, is actually has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Busyness without reconciliation, in Jesus' words, is lawlessness. It's the opposite of him. It displays that you don't know him at all. So who's the kingdom for? First of all, it's for the outcast, the lowly. Verse 2, this man with leprosy. You know, uh, in Leviticus, there's this law about cleanness. There's all these cleanness laws. Really, cleanness in Leviticus is like having a cold, right? My wife and I, my family's all been sick this week, so they were on house arrest. Not because anyone thinks <clears throat> they're sinful for getting the cold, but because we don't want to give it to you guys and because they feel like junk. But by the time you get to the first century, what happens is... Uh, it, cleanness and uncleanness, right? This, this leper is ritually unclean. Cleanness becomes 
less like a cold and more like HIV AIDS, where there's a whole entire stigma surrounding it. Right? And so you have stuff like uh, uh, John 9, this blind man, and the Pharisees ask, well, who sinned, him or his parents? Well, that made him blind. And there's a sense in which <clears throat> if someone's unclean or they've suffered some, from something, leprosy or sickness, that's obviously their fault. This leper, because of his disease, actually had to live outside of the city. This is part of the Levitical law. He had to live outside of the camp. He couldn't be around his family. He couldn't shake hands with anyone. He couldn't, probably couldn't go to the market to buy anything. He had to stay outside. And actually, if you read Leviticus, he had to go through, whenever he had to walk through the camp, he had to do what? He had to shout out, unclean, unclean. Kind of like a warning, like, warning, here I am coming. Please don't touch me. I don't want to give this to you. But this leper approaches Jesus, not because he has anything to offer, but out of desperate need. Desperate need to be welcomed back into the community. And in fact, the leper is brought back into the community. He's welcome. He's cleaned. He's not only cleaned, he's also brought back into worship. And that's the point of him coming to the priest. He's welcomed back into the house of God. The kingdom is also for outsiders. Uh, you know, verse 5, we have the centurion coming. And uh, for the average Jew, uh, the centurion is the emblem of Roman oppression. You want to talk about the people you hate the most? It's the people that killed and probably did other horrible things to your grandparents. And now it's their soldiers that come and bring their sword and they say, give me your money and give me more than that because I want a little from my pocket. And if you resist, what's going to happen? We're going to crush you. We're going to crush you. The centurion is the emblem of all that the Jews uh, were crushed by. But this oppressor, this centurion, uh, obviously is not a man of cruelty. He goes out of his way. He walks a long distance, actually, to go see Jesus and to ask for Jesus to come heal his servant or his houseboy. The word is lad or boy. He's, he's a compassionate man. He just happens to work for the Romans. And yet still, he comes to Jesus in need. He's unable to tend to this boy who's in charge of. He's in charge of this life, this boy who lives in his house and serves him. <clears throat> he comes in need, but he also comes in humility. This is the brilliant thing here. Uh, the Lord says, I'll come. Listen, I'm coming. Let's go heal him. And, and the centurion says, well, wait. I, I'm actually not worthy for you to be in my house. Listen, I realize who I am and I realize what I do. How can I have you in my house? Just say the word. I have no claim on you, Lord. I have no claim. But I'm here for your mercy. My only hope is in your mercy. And certainly he comes in faith to Jesus as God. <clears throat> you know, the beautiful thing here is that there is mercy for oppressors and abusers. In Jesus, there is mercy and reconciliation available for oppressors and abusers. This man is healed for fellowship with God, and we see this in verses 10 through 12. Jesus says, uh, Truly I tell you, or solemnly I declare this, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table 
with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That picture of reclining at table is having table fellowship. It's eating with. It's actually coming to this table and, and feasting with God. And Jesus is saying, this man who's had faith in me, who's come to me in need and humility, this man who's an outsider, this man who the Jews would be happy to kick out and exclude from God's promises, this man is welcomed in. Jesus is certainly not a racist here. His point is, by faith we come to feast with God. We're welcomed into the kingdom. He doesn't play favorites, right? He's happy to to be with the Jews. He's happy to love the Jews and heal the Jews. He's also happy to love and heal the Romans. The issue is whether you will come to him. The last thing is, who is part of this kingdom? The obscure. The obscure or the forgotten, you could say. I was trying to go for all O's, so obscure is what I chose. Uh, The forgotten people, the people who don't really have much to say for themselves in terms of public importance. And you see this in verse 14. Uh, Peter's mother-in-law, she's a mom. What's her name? We don't know. We don't know. Who are the many who come to him? We don't know. They don't have names, according to, I mean, in the passage, they are not named. And really, for most of us, we find ourselves among the many. They don't need a name for themselves. They need Jesus to heal them. Jesus heals this woman, in verse 14, for service. And you know, when I, kind of my own gut as I read this is like, wow, Jesus comes into this house, he comes into Peter's house, and he probably wants some food, and he sees that her, his mother-in-law is sick, so she heals, he heals her so that he can make, she can make him some food, right? It says that he healed her so she could wait on him. That's the word, began to serve him or wait on him, like waiting tables. Uh, actually, uh, it's not like that at all. Uh, my wife has been sick for two weeks now. And uh, I think a couple nights ago, I came up to her and we were talking at the end of the day and she said, you know, I just, I just wish I could help. I just wish I could help. I wish I could do something. But I'm stuck in bed and I'm watching shows and falling asleep and blowing nose and I, that's all I do. What, what good am I for? And she didn't say that exactly. But the point is, is that there's this sense of usefulness. There's a sense of dignity uh, that Jesus is actually restoring to this woman. He's saying, listen, I'm happy to heal you so you can serve, so you can be in this role, this dignified role. Uh, Her dignity is in her service. She's more than glad to serve. This woman's dignity is not in making a name for herself, but in serving her family and her Lord. And certainly Jesus is her Lord after he heals her, Uh, however obscurely that may look for her. So we've talked about who the king is and who the community of heaven is built from. Uh, But the last question, and this is probably the one that I care about the most here, is uh, how is the kingdom built? How is the kingdom built? You know, this woman is healed for service uh, because actually Jesus intends to take over the world uh, by healing his people for service. The Father intends to build Jesus' heavenly kingdom by making a servant-hearted people united to their Savior and strengthened and welcomed and transformed by the Spirit. This is actually how the Lord intends to build the kingdom. Uh, The Holy Spirit, the kingdom of heaven is built by the Holy Spirit through God's people. And you know, just kind of as a 
40,000 foot view on this passage, really what Jesus is doing is he's making a new humanity. Right? Jesus is the second Adam. And what he's about is he's about redeeming people. Not only from their sin and their shame and their hatred of God, but also from their sickness and their exclusion. Jesus brings them into a new family. He makes a new humanity of these people. And this is the genius of God. He's establishing a kingdom made of love and devotion to him without any of the pomp, any of the arrogance, any of the fanfare that every other king has to do to get his name out there. Right? This is what happened when Caesar would come in from winning a battle. He would send the news ahead, the, the good news of his victory ahead, the gospel, that's what that word is. He would send it ahead, and they would come into town. Big trumpets, big flags, everything. We won. We are the victors. Caesar is king, and he is bringing peace. Jesus' announcement is, I'm the suffering servant. I'm here to make a new humanity. So the Holy Spirit is actually doing this work. He's doing this work through the church. Uh, and you can see this, this community, we're saved into a new people, we're welcomed in, and really, I mean, think about the leper, he's cared for for the first time in his life, right? he would probably go see his family again. And the reality is, uh, you know, I think for most of us, uh, I, think, I think especially this church, I, I've been here for six months, I've seen the way you guys act, I've heard the stories, this is, a, this is a wonderful church to be part of. I don't say that as an advertisement, I say that as a fact, this is a, this is a family. The Lord is welcoming people in, and people are being cared for, I see it every week. But the other thing here is that, actually, this is Jesus' plan, right? Uh, he's not only healing people, he's making a church so that he can build his kingdom. And this emphasizes the importance of the local congregation. If you're not part of a local congregation, how can you be sure the Lord is using you to build his kingdom? It's implicit in this passage. It's explicit everywhere else in the scriptures. Because the church is the primary means of God's building his kingdom. Is the Lord free to do whatever he wants? Yes. Amen. Praise the Lord. So happy. <laughs> but his chosen vehicle, you people. You people. You are healed and redeemed for service. See, the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about, they're not self-centered, right? They're not feeling nice all the time and happy and joyful sometimes. No, it's... Uh, through the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Love, joy, and peace, hmm? those are about not having enmity. Those are about delighting in other things, delighting in the Lord's work, and giving yourself in love and service. You go down the whole list. It's about giving yourself to those around you. You see, piety, piety, personal holiness, godliness, is not optional for the Christian life. Godliness is not optional for the Christian life. That doesn't mean you're not going to sin. That doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't know your frame and he's not happy to forgive you. No, no, no. None of that. The Lord is more than merciful. He walks with us patiently. But he walks with us and forgives us so that we might be a redeemed people, so that we might be a pious people, so that our lives might be so marked by the fruits of the Spirit that they're sweet, that they're attractive, that the hard hearts of our neighbors who hate God for what he's done to them, they think, are actually softened. That they see, in fact, living with the Lord is a joyful thing. It's a delightful thing. Obeying his commands is not burdensome. It's a delight to be in the Lord's service. 
It's a delight to be one of the Lord's people. Holiness, real vigorous godliness is so wonderful and sweet and attractive that people can't help but notice it. I mean, you know how it is. You meet someone who has been in the church for a long time and they really don't know the Lord. Their life is not marked with holiness and piety. It's not exciting, (laughs) to say the least. But then you turn around and you meet someone who's alive with the Lord. They love the Lord. They're filled with His Spirit. They're filled with His works. They're filled with his, his, the marks of godliness, of sexual purity, of holiness, of service, of willingness to forget themselves, of generosity, of humility. I want to spend all day with someone like that. Who doesn't? They're awesome. That is really great to be around. You see, this is the opposite of the violent overthrow, right? This is not... Jesus established his kingdom by killing Herod and slaughtering Pilate, and he, he could. No, he does it obscurely, quietly. He does it secretly in people's hearts. He intends to take over the world secretly through his people living holy, attractive lives of service and obscurity, winning the hearts and lives of their neighbors. You know, uh, the church really loves, in, in the last 10 years, uh, I'm using church in a big C church. Our general American church culture is like to talk about cultural transformation and we're going to make an impact for Jesus. That's kind of a, we're kind of missing the point actually. Any sort of cultural transformation that happens is a byproduct of what the kingdom of heaven is actually about and that is reclaiming people for the Lord. Transforming people. Cultural stuff's just artifacts. People are the object of God's redemption. The other thing is that this is the Spirit's work. You know, we're joined to the Son of God, the King of Heaven. We're welcomed in as children. And we're given all the benefits of the children of God, and He hears our prayers. And He loves to provide for us. He gives us special gifts, even, to serve in His kingdom, to be used. He meets with us and blesses us in innumerable small and wonderful ways. And this is because it's the Lord's work. Our Lord is busy. He's busy all the time. The Lord is at work. He's busy establishing his kingdom, establishing his son as king in our hearts, in our homes, and in our church, certainly. He's busy tending to us and providing for us. This is not a a graceless kingdom. You know, uh, the kingdom of God is being built, and one wonderful evidence for this that most of us don't have time to reflect on is the fact that we're all sitting here. Right? Right? Jesus says in verse 12, I'm sorry, 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, you are west. You are west, 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 west. You are west as it gets. You are the ends of the earth. This is the boonies for every thinker in the first century reading this. They're thinking, really? Suns from east and west? The ends of the earth? That's not, Jesus, we're in Palestine, there's like 4,000 of us, maybe, we're probably going to be killed. Here we are. Here we are, 2,000 years later. The Lord has not given up on his people, the Lord has not given up on his work, he's active. I mean, just think about it. The fact that the whole room full of Gentiles, (laughs) people who have no interest in the Lord are, are praising him and they want to give their lives to him, this is the Lord's work. The Spirit is active. God is actively undertaking this plan. And you know, the beautiful thing is, uh, 
the church in its early days has all these miracles, the apostles are doing these miracles, and then they get arrested, and then the, the leaders of the Jews are all arguing about what they should do. Should we kill Peter and, uh, and uh, James, or what are we going to do? Are we going to just arrest these guys? How are we going to do this? And one of the oldest men in the room, Gamaliel, in Acts 5, says this. Men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. Well, he was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him came Judas the Galilean. He rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So you have these figures who are claiming to be messiahs, claiming to be somebodies, and people are following him, and then they die and scattered, gone. Well, Jesus likewise came and began his kingdom, and he has a small cadre of believers. Gamaliel continues, he says, So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to be opposing God. God is on the move. God is active. He is certainly working today. Every day. Every day I hear stories of the Lord softening people's hearts, providing miraculously for people. I mean, numerous stories from Bethany and I's life together of the Lord randomly sending us checks for $3,000. How does that happen? How does it happen that a a whole group of people who in their hearts are stubborn and stiff-necked come to be with the Lord? It happens because the Spirit's working. Oftentimes it's quiet and silent. We're given this, the image of a mustard seed, right? How did, mustard, how did seeds grow? Quiet, silent. You don't hear it. You don't see anything. But this seed has sprouted. The Lord is certainly working. You know, if you're new to church and you, or you wouldn't call yourself a believer, uh, just listen. I think the Lord has you here for a reason. Uh, the Lord, uh, you know, I'm not sure of your past church experience, but the Lord is the true king. He's the king of the outcasts. He's the king of former oppressors who are willing to be repentant. He's the king of the obscure. If you find yourself here, it's likely because the Lord is seeking you out. So just come. Seek him with us. Uh, Come face to face with the king of heaven today. Uh, And come and see me. I'd love to pray with you after the service. But for all of us who are here week in, week out, for the believers here, brothers and sisters, I want to say two things. You must see the importance of holiness in your life, of personal piety. This is, this is the mission of God, that he would make a new people. You've got to see how crucial it is for you to be holy. But that's, that's dead and tiresome unless, unless you also see and fill your mind and heart with the fact that the Lord is doing this, that the Lord is working in your life day by day. There is hope and there is a constant foretaste of heaven for those who are joined to Jesus. Holiness is just living out the joy we have in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is active. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray.